This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 15th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The contracts clause in the U.S. Constitution is meant to protect people who sign legally binding agreements from discovering later that their contracts have been or will be summarily altered by a new law. A new case recently decided by the Supreme Court has again chipped away at that provision of the Constitution. Cato's Roger Pallon discusses the case. What was the contracts clause meant to accomplish? And more than that, what historical evidence uh, outside of the Constitution itself do we have that this was the intent of the founders to create a clause in the Constitution to accomplish this thing? Well, let's start with what the contracts clause says. It says that no state shall pass any law, any law, impairing the obligations of contracts. And so that means that if you enter into a contract with someone, you have a reasonable expectation that, that, that the terms of that contract are going to be upheld. So you, do, you wouldn't have to depend on the political wins in your state uh, in order to rest assured that a contract you write today will actually be enforced or enforceable five years, ten years from now. In fact, that's precisely the reason that we have the Contracts Clause, because under the Articles of Confederation, uh, states uh, looking at the debts uh, that were incurred during the Revolutionary War and noticing that there were far more debtors than there were creditors began passing statutes forgiving debts. And uh, that Private debts. uh, Private debts, that's correct. And... uh, The problem there is the same problem that arose with respect to why we have the Commerce Clause, namely that when you you allow legislatures to legislate fast and loose with respect to contractual obligations, just as when you allow legislatures to impose tariffs and other barriers to the free flow of goods and services, you will have a breakdown of the free flow of goods and services. And so when the framers got together in Philadelphia in 1787, they put both the Commerce Clause and the Contracts Clause in the Constitution to ensure that we would have free markets thereafter. The problem, of course, is that in both cases, eventually those guarantees went away, and they did so mostly during the New Deal era when the legislature, Congress in this case, thought that it could regulate economic affairs uh, more uh, efficiently than people could regulate their own economic affairs through contractual arrangements. All right. So uh, how have courts since that time uh, looked at the contracts clause because b- before we started recording, you said that there is something of a debate about what the contracts clause actually represents, whether it uh, merely means that the state cannot uh, abrogate or alter contracts that have, have been already been written and are already in, being enforced or con- does it refer to contracts that have yet to be written? Right. Is the clause uh, retrospective or prospective as well? Now, Richard Epstein argues, and I believe he's correct, that the contracts clause should be read properly as allowing for freedom of contracts such that 
in the future, you should be able to enter into whatever contracts you choose, uh, provided, of course, you respect the other rights, the rights of uh, third parties in the process. However, the court has held that, for, for in large measure, the contracts clause is meant to um, affect only future contracts. It's not supposed to have retroactive uh, uh, effect. Okay. So the, the fact that the, co- the contracts clause under that view would, would mean we can write a law in such a way that certain future contracts could not be enforced if they contain terms that were um, disallowed by this legislature. Correct. And uh, the case that uh, came before the Supreme Court uh, just recently uh, was a a divorce case in which the issue of retroactive effect came front and center. And if you'd like, uh, uh, Caleb, I will just set forth the facts of that. The case is Sveen et al. v. Mellon. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Tell me what – give me the – the details of that case. All right. Um, Mark Sveen and the respondent, Kay Mellon, uh, were married in 1997. And the next year, uh, Mr. Sveen uh, purchased a life insurance policy, a contract, that is to say, naming uh, his wife, Mellon, as the primary beneficiary and designated his two children from a prior marriage uh, as uh, contingent beneficiaries. Uh, the marriage ended in divorce in 2007, uh, but the divorce decree made no mention of the insurance policy. And so uh, Sven, um, Mr. Sven, that is to say, uh, took no action uh, to revise his beneficiary designations. And after he died in 2011, um, the children uh, and his former wife made com- com- competing claims uh, to the insurance proceeds. Um, The Sven children uh, argued uh, that Minnesota's revocation on divorce law uh, canceled um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mellon's uh, or the former wife's uh, beneficiary designation, leaving them as the rightful recipients. Okay. So let me say this to the listening audience. If you agree with Roger Pallon, and Richard Epstein on the nature of the contracts clause, you need to update your will as regularly (laughs) as possible and update your life insurance designation and your retirement account designation immediately after you get divorced. Would that be your advice as well? That is one piece of advice. The other piece of advice is get good lawyering. And so many legal problems arise today because people do not get good lawyering. Well, in any event, to continue with the facts of this case, um, the... um, uh, the, the, the ex-wife uh, claimed that uh, because the law was not uh, in effect, did not exist uh, when the uh, life insurance policy was purchased and she was named as the primary beneficiary, uh, then applying the law after the fact uh, amounts to a violation of the contracts clause. Uh, the district court disagreed. But the Court of Appeals in the Eighth Circuit agreed with her, and that's the posture of the case when it went to the Supreme Court. Regrettably, eight to one, the Supreme Court reversed the appellate court and found for the children, and the ex-wife was out of court, as it were. And uh, this uh, led to, uh, a, as I said, an eight to one decision, the one being Justice uh, the new justice, uh, 
Neil Gorsuch, and he wrote a straightforward dissent, and I think he had by far the better of the argument. All right. So um, what was the that court held that this uh, did not, the Minnesota law did not violate the contracts clause. And uh, what did the majority argue here? Well, uh, this was uh, Justice Kagan. And she said that the threshold issue is whether the state uh, law has operated as a substantial impairment of the contractual relationship. And to to answer that question, uh, the court considered the extent to which the law undermines the contractual bargain, interferes with the party's reasonable expectations, and prevents the party from safeguarding uh, or uh, restating, uh, reinstating his rights. It's a classic three-part test, and the court concluded that only the uh, uh, first criterion was at issue. He said that the court could stop after step one uh, because the revocation of divorce statutes, listen to this now, does not substantially impair pre-existing contractual arrangements. And then it went on to say, true enough that in revoking a beneficiary designation, the law makes a significant change. Significant change, as Justice uh, Gorsuch went on to say, it changed the main point of the contract, namely that his former wife is to get the proceeds. Yeah, you buy uh, life insurance so that when you die, certain people uh, have this lump sum of cash with which to carry on. Right. And, uh, and the, so that was a substantial alteration oh, of the yeah, contract. Yeah. Well, well, the, the, uh, the, the court goes on to, to explain why, in its view, uh, this uh, did not make a significant uh, that it made a significant change, but did not impair pre-existing contractual arrangements. And he gave three reasons. First of all, said the statute is designed to reflect the policyholder's intent and to support rather than impair the contractual scheme. Now, this this sounds Orwellian. Uh, you are probably on to it. Secondly, the court said. The law is unlikely to disturb any policyholder's expectations because it does no more than a divorce court could always have done. <clears throat> and finally, the, th- the third point is says the statute supplies a mere default rule because the policyholder can undo uh, the result uh, at any moment. And so what we have here is a situation where the court is working with certain presumptions. The presumption is, and this is what justifies the statute, that if the policyholder, in this case, Mr. Sven, had thought of it, he would have wanted the result that the statute uh, imp- uh, r- implies because most uh, ex husbands do not want the proceeds of their life insurance to go to their ex-wife. Now, that may be true in most cases, but of course, it turns out, as Justice Gorsuch noted, that this was probably not one of those cases. And the reason it was not is because as uh, the ex-wife testified that she and her former husband agreed, and I quote here from uh, Justice uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, dissent, quote, 
agreed repeatedly to keep each other as the primary beneficiaries in their respective life insurance policies, not only because they remained friends, but because they paid the policy premiums from their joint checking account. And so this raises a separate issue, and it's this. The court makes much of the fact that uh, courts can change the terms of a contract. And that is true in some cases, probably more uh, often than not in cases just like this where you've got a court adjudicating a divorce and you have issues of spousal support or uh, support for children arising. And the court will have to look at wills and life insurance and retirement accounts and so forth to make an equitable distribution of the proceeds. Now, the court did not do that in this case with respect to the life insurance policy. But notice the difference here. We're talking about courts doing it on a case-by-case basis, looking at the facts in the case, which are dispositive of how the equitable distribution should take place. The statute is a broad brush effect that imposes its effect on all parties, whatever the particulars are to it. And that leads us to the the interesting insight that it is much more difficult for statutes to address these particulars than it is for courts. And that's why we ought to be particularly uh, leery of turning so much over to legislatures when these are the kinds of cases that are best adjudicated uh, on a um, case-by-case basis in light of the facts before the court. So it's perfectly within a legislature's uh, purview to say that you may not contract for for example, someone's death. Uh, sure. You you may not contract for permanent servitude, or, or for polluting uh, in streams or uh, other your neighbor's property. Uh, insofar as it, uh, uh, he's no party to it. Okay. So uh, yeah. So as, as long if, if uh, as long as third party rights are right. respected, you're saying that the 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 right of contract should not be. Uh, impacted by state laws. Mm -hmm. So uh, where does this leave the contracts clause today? Does it it make a significant change or is this just going down that same road? One of the great inroads on the contracts clause took place in a 1934 decision, again in Minnesota, Blaisdell, in which the uh, court, the New Deal Supreme Court, uh, uh, faced a statute that put in abeyance mortgage payments of farmers, this was during the Depression, um, for a period of two years. And uh, this was a 5-4 decision, and the uh, famous four horsemen were in dissent and raised very clearly the problems of inroads on um, on the contracts clause. But here, interestingly, in the Blaisdell case, they were talking about remedies and uh, Justice Gorsuch raises that issue when he addresses the court's attempt to uh, distinguish uh, remedies from the actual rights of the case. Gorsuch says, uses as an example a case, uh, an earlier case, where a man sold the same piece of property twice. 
uh, and he did not. Uh, they did not record the first sale, so the property, when it was adjudicated, went to the second buyer because that purchase had been um, had been um, recorded. The first buyer, however, was not out of court. In other words, the decision of the court was that the uh, recorded deed uh, would be recognized and and therefore uh, the remedy was set forth by that court. The first buyer, however, still had his rights to sue for damages under the first unrecorded contract. So this distinction that the court draws between rights and remedies does not hold up for the very reasons that Justice Gorsuch saw, uh, set forth in his uh, dissent. Roger Pallon is vice president for legal affairs at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>